Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Total Quidditch Podcast, a place where we talk to the people who make Quidditch what it is and give them an opportunity to share their stories and experiences of the sport. I'm Fraser and I'll be your host. We've got some fancy new tech for this episode. I purchased a new microphone the other day, so hopefully the sound quality on my end is better for you, the listeners. Shout out to Geo, Tony and Ashton, who all recommended the same thing for me to get. Uh, if any of you guys are listening... Thank you very much for your support. Really appreciate it. Our guest for today's episode is also a close friend of the show and a teammate of mine. He actually helped us get set up and running as a podcast, so it seemed only fair to return the favour and have them make an appearance on the show sometime. So here they are. The most recent head coach of Team UK and captain of Ross Raptors QC, who has sadly just stepped down from both roles as he prepares to take up a new adventure out in China. Hot off the press, news right for you there. Uh, here at Turk Quidditch, we're very much on the pulse when it comes to news in the Quidditch world. So there you go. Uh, whether as a physical uncompromising, uncompromising player, <laughs> as a captain or coach, or in many of the other roles he's taken up, this person has gained reputation as one of the most polarising and complex personalities in the sport. Swanning in to talk to us today, Jay Holmes, welcome to the pod. How are you? Hello, Fraser. Thank you for having me. I, I enjoy the description polarising. I think from maybe <laughs> my, my second year in the sport, that was the, uh, the word that was used to describe me in, in a lot of uh, different ways. Um, <laughs> it's fantastic to, to be here. Thank you for having me on. And I think this is probably my first media appearance in about six years where I don't really have to worry as much about what I'm saying because I don't hold a properly official role anymore. So I'm very, very excited to uh, finally tell the listeners how I feel about things. Well, thank, thank you very much for joining us. It's uh, great to get this uh, very exclusive interview. <laughs> uh, so I guess first off, kind of with the whole pandemic situation, you're someone who's known to wear multiple hats in the UK and European community. How have you coped with this period without Quidditch? Has it been a welcome break for you or have you hated being less busy than usual? How, how, how have you filled the time? Um, I've absolutely hated it. I think anyone who knows me knows that I'm, I'm a very, very sociable person. Um, I like to do something with almost every weekend I have free. I hate being inside. I don't like not being able to go outside. I really enjoy playing sports. So the pandemic has absolutely knocked all of that on the head. Uh, the other thing with Quidditch, you know, I finally got to, after eight years, finally got to a place where I was happy in the positions that I held within Quidditch. And then all of a sudden there was no more Quidditch. Uh, so maybe that was my fault and I jinxed it all. Um, but it's been good. It's been good. A lot of old injuries have finally had enough time off to heal, uh, which has been fantastic. I've had a lot of time to, you know, lose some weight and do some more specialised training, which has been great. It's been, I think, for myself and a lot of other people, the first real off season we've had in in a very, very, very long time. So that's been welcome. Um, but I've I've missed seeing, you know, my friends, my team, Team UK being involved with the community quite a lot. So a lot of my Quidditch time has been 
burrowing myself in spreadsheets with my new and fantastical ideas for when we come out of lockdown. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've uh, really found things to keep you busy while with all the sort of lack of activity going on uh, this current time. Could you tell us about your podcast and what you've done with that? Uh, yeah, of course. It's, it's hard. Which, which one? I think I'm known for my, <laughs> my shameless self-promotion in the community. Uh, yeah, so I have a, a podcast at the moment with Andrew Hull called Teammates, uh, where we do some serious stuff, where I interview some important people from various sports, but we do a lot of silly stuff as well. So the main thing we do is we take a sport, uh, usually something like football or rugby, and then we apply a, a fantasy theme to it. So if Harry Potter characters played football, what position would they be in? And that's just been a really, you know, nice way to, to have a bit of fun on a podcast, which is a bit more relaxed um, and, you know, build build on the Jay Holmes brand, I think, in some new areas. For sure, for sure. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed listening to the episode so far, and I was very pleased to feature on one of them as well. Um, <laughs> something everyone should uh, go and check out. Uh, it's a different kind of uh, sports podcast for you li- to listen to. It so, is, it is the, the niche of the niche, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Especially of all uh, the Roundnet episodes, which are obviously the best ones. Uh, everyone should go check those out. So we're going to jump into the main section of the episode now. Uh, so starting at the very beginning, that even before Quidditch, going way, way back. So young, young Jay Holmes here. <laughs> what was your sporting background kind of upbringing? So I know that, like myself, you were a head boy. Um, but what kind of sports and kind of what backgrounds did you have coming into Quidditch? Uh, yeah, so I, I think the background I'm from is probably quite different to a lot of Quidditch players. Um, I grew up in a, in a very, very working class family. Um, not that we were, you know, Oliver Twist, but there wasn't always money about. Uh, and that sort of gave me a, a work ethic from my parents that they had to work for everything and they worked incredibly hard to be successful. And they sort of transferred that onto me. So I was always about, you know, putting in effort in everything I did. And the main thing that I put my effort into was academics and writing. So uh, creative writing, media, poetry, things like that. Um, And I I was quite competitive with that. I I like to try and excel um, and, you know, won a few writing competitions and things like that. Sadly, where I fell apart uh, was on any sport whatsoever. I was an incredibly unfit child. I was dreadful at PE. Um, I dreaded PE lessons. I I dreaded playing sport. Uh, But I always really tried my best um, because that was sort of the the background I was in that, you know, even if you weren't fantastic at something, you you have to put effort in. You have to try and achieve something uh, as as a person, as as a man growing up. And I watched my, my father and my mother work incredibly hard at everything they did so that sort of put the same work ethic into me um sports that i was sort of semi-decent at i, I played rugby uh, and was, was quite good at rugby because i was a big fat kid um which was really helpful and i really enjoyed uh, martial arts as well um i was a, a very very uh confused and quite angry young man and there was a lot of things going on when i was growing up that 
you know, I, I wasn't quite sure how to, to deal with and to, to function with. But martial arts was a, was a great way of sort of dealing with that, giving me some discipline. Uh, my father was a, a very, very successful sportsman. Um, he did boxing, Muay Thai, he played football, he played squash, tennis. Um, but there was never really any pressure on me to perform in sports. Uh, a saying that he said to me, probably when I was about six years old, that's always sort of stuck with me, was if you run a race and you come last, but you break your personal best, no one else can ask any more of you because you've put all of that effort in. You've done the best that you possibly could. And as long as you try your hardest, uh, no one can really take that result away from you. And that's sort of an attitude that I, I've applied to, to my whole life um, and that affected my sports. Um, I was also quite ill as a child. Um, I went from being incredibly overweight uh, to probably quite underweight um, as well. So sports was never really something that I really took too much notice of before I went to university. Mm-hmm. It sounds like quite an eventful upbringing and in many ways kind of gave you the foundations to really excel when you came into the sport. There's a interesting kind of backstory you have there. So yeah. um, coming into uh, university, you went to Banging University in Wales. What brought you to Quidditch? What appealed to you about the sport that made you want to commit to it? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I had my summer before university and I sort of took stock of myself. I knew that I should probably pick up playing some sport. Um, the main reason that I wanted to play sport uh, is because I wanted girls to like me. Um, <laughs> that is Pure and simple. <laughs> I, was, I was a massive loser, um, which I'm sure is a shock to everyone listening um but i you know before i went to university uh i and i don't mind talking about this i'd never had a girlfriend you know i'd never kissed a girl i was super super lame and i was like well you know from what i've seen uh girls really like guys who play sport so if i play sport maybe that will help so i got to university had a look at myself you know 18 year old jay holmes uh six foot about 70 kilograms too small for rugby looked at the rugby still went I'm, I'm all right at rugby i'll get eaten alive it was like next one american football <laughs> looked at the guys on the american football stool and i was like if i if i wanted to you know compress my spine that'd be the way to go uh, but i don't want to came across the handball stool talked to them handball yeah that looks like something i can do i can throw and catch ball fairly well and then towards the end, I sort of stumbled across the, the Quidditch stool and it was uh, Ben Honey uh, was there. And he's like, oh, you're right, mate. Uh, come and give Quidditch a go. And I've never read Harry Potter and don't particularly care about it. But I saw it and I was like, that'll be that'll be a funny pub story to tell some of my mates when I go home. So sort of never thought about trying Quidditch it was like handball's going to be the thing that I that I do. So I went to the handball training session. And uh, my God, it, it took a lot of stock on what an unremarkable athlete I was. Um, there was a, one of the first drills was you paired up. So I paired up with someone. Hi, I'm Jay. Nice to meet you. And you have to throw a ball maybe 15 metres. Uh, that was it. And I got in my pair and they were like, right, we're going to start off really easy drill. 
just passed the ball to each other. And I threw this handball, and it must have fallen five metres short. <laughs> threw it, and I was like, goodness me. And it was, it was super embarrassing. I felt like an absolute fool being there. And I was like, right, maybe handball isn't the one. I said I'd go to Quidditch, um, so I'll give that a go. Uh, turned up to the Quidditch taste session in my West Ham United football shirt uh, to let everyone know what an absolute top lad that I was. Um, and they had all of these wooden brooms laid out on the floor. And I was thinking, I'd seen the Harry Potter films, and I was like, if they make me stand next to a broom and put my hand out and say, up, I'm leaving. I was like, I made that that pact with myself. I was like, oh, I'll find something else. Um, And there's a man that we'll probably talk about a fair bit. I saw, you know, a young Andrew Hull bounding down this hill. You know, when Andrew was a bit of a, a, a chubbier lad, I was looking at him, I was like, oh, this is a this is a big boy. Maybe, maybe Quidditch is a bit oi oi. And then he turned to me and he had a T-shirt with a picture of the TARDIS on that said, keep calm, I'm the doctor. Um, <laughs> maybe it's not quite as oi oi as I originally thought. Um, tried to taste the session, was fine. Um, like I sucked at Quidditch for ages, but really, really got on well with everyone there. Um, they sort of appreciated me for the the many quirks that I had as a person. And it was sort of one of those things that I found myself going to Quidditch. And I was like, yeah, I I guess this is the thing that I'm going to do. And in about my my fourth session, I was like, do you know what? One day I'll captain this club and we'll be be really, really good. It's quite important to have so early on. This is, this is it. This is the, for me, I like these people. I can see where we're going. You know, I think I'm the man. One day I'll captain this club and sort of stuck it out from there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's, well, that's something a lot of people can relate to, just kind of seeing Quidditch or f- finding out about it, going, <laughs> oh, well, this will be a laugh. Even if I do it once, might as well give it a go. And then <laughs> turning up and then just getting invested in the people and the environment created. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Super. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, I guess in many ways it's down to your athletic ability prior to Quidditch that you ended up with us. Otherwise, you would have been a famous handball player by now, right? Yeah, exactly. If if I was if I was mildly better as a sportsman, I'd have never have you know shattered Quidditch with my existence. <laughs> um, but but sadly, you know, a love of a love of chocolate. And a body that didn't grow particularly well as a as a teenager lumbered me with Quidditch. Uh-huh. There you go. Um, so there you started out your career with the Banger Broken Broomsticks, it's the team at Banger University. Now with Banger, <laughs> within sort of the UK scene, they ha- they ha- kind of had this sort of cult reputation for being kind of a play hard, party hard team which it was kind of over in West Wales, like no one really knew what was going on over there. So could you kind of lift the curtain up for us a bit? Give us a sense of what Bang was like in your days there. Could you tell us maybe a story or two, whether that's on pitch or off pitch, so something like that, just to give us a flavour of what Bang was like. 
Uh, yes, yeah, so I think like in in the first two years that I played Quidditch, um, Banger Banger developed this reputation. We were super lame, like we were not cool. Um, but I think to to talk to people like Banger is tiny. All of your friends are maybe five ten meters away, at uh, ten minutes away from. You. <laughs> Well, some some (laughs) of my friends were 10 metres away from me, to be fair. Um, So it was really easy to to meet up, to go to the pub, to go clubbing. And Bangor didn't have a lot to do. Like, you studied, you played sport, you went out. Those were basically what Bangor had to offer. Um, So we'd go out after every training. So we'd train for three hours twice a week, go to the pub. Um, We'd go out clubbing. We'd have some themed socials. We'd have a really good time. Um, in my captaincy year, I think is when it got a bit more lads, lads, lads. Um, obviously, they had me as captain uh, with the likes of, you know, Liam Vernon and, and Faber and Brunt, who, you know, we all enjoyed a, a good drink. Um, and we were a close-knit team. Um, we still socialised. Like, there was there was times when I'd spend almost every day uh, with Liam and Fabian. Um, we'd do some, you know, themed socials, uh, some of which probably on okay but luckily we've we've left university now so there was like the the tamer socials were things like a fruit and veg social where we do a, a pub crawl and every time you weren't touching the fruit or veg that was assigned to you you'd have to down your drink um we do a what's the family friendly way of saying this um there's a particular uh colored light street in amsterdam um that we do a themed party of where everyone would dress as uh, as patrons or savants of those particular <laughs> types of houses that got a bit oi oi. That's very um, eloquent of you. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there were other things like, so we trained pretty hard. Like one of the drills that I quite enjoyed was uh, something called Crawl to Heaven, um, which is where, you know, it would rain in Bangalore's and then, you know, we, we'd get our kit off and you'd crawl halfway up a rugby pitch and then crawl the other half back um, as quickly as you possibly could. Um, and just things like that. And it built a lot of resilience. But I think the the like, the like lure of Bangor got built up. But we were just, we were loud. We enjoyed a drink. We didn't really care what anyone thought of us. Um, and I think we were definitely a bit more rough around the edges than a lot of other Quidditch teams, which sort of created this mystique uh, about us. Um, but I, I, I'll try not to say any more or else, you know, the Bang University lawyers will be on me <laughs> try, trying to shut me down. Yeah, sure. It's uh, good to kind of hear a little bit of uh, what went on mm. all the way over there and uh, just get an idea of uh, what really happened. And yeah, yeah maybe it wasn't quite as uh, outrageous as many people would have thought. But uh, I mean, sounds like a lot of fun. There were definitely there were definitely some nights where they were as outrageous as people think. But there was a joke with me and my friends that you know we'd have the things we don't talk about, which were like the the embarrassing stuff uh, that we'd like tear each other into. If like oh you got off with this person or you got drunk and embarrassed yourself doing that. Uh, but then the other side was the things that we actually don't talk about, and there are things that happened uh, in our time at Bangor uh, that we never even joke about because they were, they were quite intense. <laughs> um, and I, I think that, that was part of it though. Like we were such a small close knit team. You were in each other's pocket. We all knew everything about us. And I think we were definitely one of the teams that 
in the community spent some of the most time together, opposed to other teams at the time. Yeah, exactly. No, no secrets. The, exactly. Yeah, and that close bond. Fantastic. Uh, so throughout your time at Banger, what would you say was your proudest achievement? Uh, so my proudest achievement at Banger was getting full colours in Quidditch from Banger University. Um, I was the first person in the UK to get full colours in Quidditch award from their university. Half colours had been given out before and blues had been given out before, but I was the first person to get full colours. Um, and that for me sort of cemented what I'd given to the club. It meant that, you know, the, the sacrifice, the work that I'd given to the club was, was all very worth it. Um, but it also meant that the university was sort of acknowledging what I was contributing, not just to the club, but to the wider banger experience. Because I, I got half colours for playing wheelchair basketball at university. Um, but full colours when I got them was, was really quite difficult to get. Um, and certainly got me a lot of respect from the other captains and sports teams within banger. Um, and and that, that, meant, that meant a lot to me, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something I can really understand. And uh, to get that external recognition, not just from within the Quidditch community, uh, but from outside of it, um, having that recognition at university level, I think is massive. I know at Southampton, where I studied, and having a few of our players get that recognition from the Athletic Union was fantastic for both the morale of those people and also just for getting Quidditch recognised and respected as a sport. So well, that, that's fantastic. That's the thing. Like when I when I speak to people saying, you know, oh, I'm captain of Raptors, I'm head coach of Team UK, blah 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 blah, it means nothing to them. But when you say, oh, I've got full colours from university, if you played sport at university, you know how much that means, and you mm. know what that accolade is. So it sort of helped to to legitimise how I was spending my time as well to a lot of people. Yeah, for sure. And I found sort of. Personally, when you talk, when you talk to people that are outside the community, and they might take the piss a little bit because obviously there's that Harry Potter link with Quidditch. You kind of just want to feel validated in terms yes. of what you've done. So to have that recognition at university level is, yeah, obviously a oh, proud moment. Yeah, really, um, really proud moment. Super. So, gonna cast everyone's memory back to our second episode. If you haven't listen to it already please do so it's uh one of many great episodes on the total push podcast um we spoke with ash cooper who he he chose you as the person he found the most surprising in quidditch kind of while you're at bang and i guess kind of part of the whole banger vibe so to speak you had this kind of jokey representation within the community a lot of people remember you as the, the guy who was the drunk commentator at the World Cup finals <laughs> um, and sort of liked to have a, have a laugh, have a joke and wear outrageous outfits at tournaments and just enjoy themselves. Um, yeah. The people, I, I guess, I kind of agree with this. I, it was difficult to really take you seriously. Yeah. Um, I think that's kind of fair to say. Oh, 100%. However, when you joined Lost Raptors QC after you graduated from banger i think certainly i noticed and i believe a lot of other people did as well you had quite a remarkable image change to being this prominent figure 
within the UK game, taking up various roles. So what prompted this change in character? Uh, yeah, so it all comes back to, to graduating from, from university. Um, my last year of Quidditch uh, didn't go particularly successfully for, for Bangor, uh, but I noticed that at Merck tournaments, um, I was getting a reputation as a half-decent player, and I started to do quite well. Um, and got to the end of the university, and I was like, eh, am I bothered by Quidditch? Um, am I not bothered by Quidditch? And World Cup was happening. And I was like, do you know what? We'll go, we'll go have a laugh at World Cup. I've got quite a reputation of being, you know, quite a good commentator. I'll go commentate at World Cup. That'll be a laugh. And, you know, I'll never play this again. Uh, so on the way to World Cup, um, I was run over by a car <laughs> um, and hurt quite badly. Uh, and instead of going to hospital, I chose to go to World Cup regardless. Uh, and the reason that I was, I was absolutely lashed for most of the time I was at World Cup is because I couldn't feel one of my legs. Um, oh, wow. I'd done quite a lot of damage um, to my left leg. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> painkillers weren't readily available, but beer was. Uh, for sure. So Lots of great German beer. Beer really sorted that out. But while I was at World Cup, I was sort of watching Team UK play. I was watching these other teams play. I was, I was in the atmosphere and I was like, you know what, this is actually... It's actually the business, you know. This is this is a lot of fun, and I'm I'm looking at Team UK. Going, wow, these these guys have got it going on, you know. They they are a serious operation. Um, after World Cup happened, Ash stepped down as head coach of Team UK, and I was like, yeah, I'll give that a go. I reckon I'd smash it as head coach of Team UK. Uh, applied and was utterly dreadful as a candidate. <laughs> Honestly, I, I didn't know how much I didn't know. Um, bombed in the interview questions. Like one of the questions was, how would you beat Australia? I didn't have an, a clue how I'd beat Australia. Like apart from shooting them with a rifle, I didn't have much <laughs> a lot, uh, for slowing them down. Uh, and then sort of looked at that, looked at joining Raptors. And, uh, you know, it was... It was interesting. Uh, I was I was Andrew Hull and Tom Haynes' mate, basically. Um, and I was like, well, if I commit to joining this team, because it was Tim Raptors and Unspeakables, I was like, well, if I if I join Raptors, I'm sort of putting my stall out that I'm taking this seriously. Um, so I got, you know, assistant coach to expansion squad and joined Raptors at the same time. And I was like, do you know what? I do quite enjoy this game, so I'll so I'll stick with it. Uh, and then I, you know, I joined Raptors, um, and it was a completely different world to playing with Banger. Uh, I went from being, you know, the absolute man, full colours hero, give me the ball, I'll I'll sell us a dream, uh, to absolutely nobody. I was I was Jay the lad to a lot of people at Raptors. I could tell from my first session, uh, a lot of these people thought absolutely nothing of me as a player and as a person um you know they thought i, I wasn't great uh, at the game and they thought i i was going to be quite a quite a toxic member um and i remember getting there and thinking blimey you will take this a bit serious um so i met james down in garden 
Uh, and if you told me at my rack to taste the session that I'd be best man at his wedding and we'd play 103 games together, I'd have called you a madman. <laughs> I looked at James and I was like, you take yourself so seriously, mate. Like, you need to relax. And he looked at me and thought, this moron 20-something doesn't know what he's talking about. So there was quite a big culture clash in the team. And you have to think about, you know, I was joining a team that had the Team World head coach and many of Team UK's best players. And my accolade to my name then was I captained the team to 12th at BQC. So I, I sort of stood out as the, the player that didn't have any standing. There'd be some, you know, conversations and I'd stand there a bit lost and, uh, and not really knowing what to say or, or who to say it to. Um, and a lot of people spoke about that they had this sort of interpretation that I was just going to go and, and, you know, ruin the team a little bit. And I, I wasn't. I, I was really dedicated to trying to get better. Um, and I, I like to think, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about my captaincy and coaching. that I, I won them over. But, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was a real real tough transition from Bangor to Raptors. I really didn't enjoy that first year of Raptors whatsoever. I felt really a bit like an outcast on the team. Um, there was quite a big divide between the good players and the, the bench QC, which I was, <laughs> I was proudly pioneering. Um, <laughs> and it, it got to the end of my first year at Raptors. And I was like, you know what? This is this is a waste of my time. Like, I don't. I'm not really getting on with people. They're they're not really sure about me, even though I've put in loads of effort. You know, I've got better, but I'm I'm going to pack this in. You know, Raptors can do one. Who cares? Um, and I was ready to pack it in. I was going to start my own team, and then I was like talking to some of the other bench QC heroes. And I was thinking the one thing that I always moaned about in Quidditch was people running away from their problems, you know, not doing anything to try and make things better. And I was like, if I if I leave Raptors, I'm, I'm admitting defeat. I'm saying this is all too much for me. I can't cope with it. I'm going to run away. So I was like, do you know what? I'll do the exact opposite. Um, and instead of leaving and bidding all this off, I'll apply to be captain of the team change our culture uh, and lead us to the promised land. And uh, I, I like to think I did a, did a half decent job of, uh, of trying to do that. But yeah, it was a, it was a tough old transition uh, from Bangor to Raptors. Wow. That's quite a revelation. I imagine for a lot of people, um, certainly for myself, kind of looking from the outside in, um, you wouldn't have necessarily known, all of that so yeah thank you very much for sharing it's all right uh, but yeah i get i really got your point about the 2016 world cup and i feel like that was obviously it's a very important moment within the history of the sport as australia defeating the us mm. but having sort of a, a global event that side i think really inspired many people to really commit to quidditch and kind of see what it was then and how good it was and sort of see the potential of it, what it could be. And obviously you really bought into that after a rather traumatic experience with a car. Uh, yeah, that was, that was like, I had people say to me, you say you don't care about Quidditch. You, you've literally been in a, a traffic accident 
and chosen to come on holiday to watch Quidditch instead of sorting it out. So I think I think that was mm. probably the moment when I knew I cared uh, quite a lot. Yeah, it really says a lot about you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. And, uh, obviously, kind of stepping into that Raptor environment, being around all these sort of high-end people competing at the very top, obviously rubbed off on you and... We can still still see that ambition flowing through you. Obviously, you said how when you initially joined Bangor in the first few sessions, like, yeah, I can captain this team. I can, yeah. I can lead it. And obviously, you've kind of continued that ambition, applying to head coach Team UK off the back of the World Cup. And then at the end of your first year of Raptors, not really enjoying it, but going, do you know what? I'm going to stick with this. I'm going to commit to it. Right, I'll apply to captain Raptors. Yeah, it I mean, when you say them out loud, they're, they're probably not the most, you know, intellectually stimulated decisions that I've, <laughs> when I've gone, I've got literally zero clout, but I'll I'll give this a go. Um, but it was it was just one of those things. Like as I'm talking about my upbringing, my my parents made it clear to me that you you see things out, you don't run away from your problems, um, and if you if you're trying to do something, you may as well try and succeed in it. Um, they yeah, sure. they worked incredibly hard at everything they did. And I remember there were times where, you know, I'm sure on a deeper level, I'm sure there were days my dad didn't want to drag himself into work every day for two weeks. Um, he was he a was decorator. Um, and the, the toll that took on his body. Uh, but he did it. And, you know, he did mm. that. Not, not for glory of, of winning a trophy or, you know, so that everyone could call him the villain of the community. He did that to... to <laughs> to feed his son and to feed his wife. And my mum, you know, she went to work every day. And I, I think for me to turn around and say, I've given up because Quidditch is a bit hard and has made me a bit sad, would have discredited every lesson my parents tried to teach me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite a, a deep observation there. And uh, I think it's a lesson that a lot of people can really take away there. That, yeah, if it's... If it's uh, difficult, it's, uh, well, it's it's worth committing to sometimes. Exactly. Uh, sticking with it and uh, obviously you reap the rewards of that. Yeah, I've tried uh, to. <laughs> for sure. Um, so we've discussed in previous episodes, um, we obviously had Lucy on, we've had Ash on, um, talking a bit about, oh, and obviously Seb as well, kind of talking about competing against Raptors. We've discussed the team a lot. Um and for, for good reason, because in 2017, won the British Quidditch Cup. And then again in 2018, this time with you as the captain, uh, Vlos Raptors won it again, um, winning back-to-back national titles. And so far, it's the only team to have achieved that feat in the UK game. So obviously, you've talked quite a bit about that first year of Raptors. How do you say the second year compares and obviously, you'd reached the summit, you'd become national champions, achieved a dream of what many people kind of set out to do with the team. How did you avoid complacency in that second year in order to win again? I think having me as captain, uh, I, I like to think helped in some way. Um, that season is probably the most addicted to Quidditch I've, I've ever been. And I'm aware of, I've been addicted to Quidditch for a long time now. Um, but I was I was so motivated going into that season, you know, like I'd I'd had my time with uh, with Monarchs, 
over the summer. Played a few Merc tournaments. I was like, do you know what? I'm, I'm doing quite well as a player here. I'm developing as a leader. Sort of changed the team culture a bit. We had a bit more of a laugh. Um, the only way I knew how, which was going to the pub a couple of times. Um, and in trainings, you sort of got the, got the impression that everyone was really working towards this. Um, but the other reason that I motivated the team, I think, and wanted to win so much um, was a few things. So I went into this season going, the only way anyone's going to take me seriously is if we do better than last season. If we win more games than we won last season, no one can deny, you know, Jay Holmes, he's, he's got something about him. Uh, and the other thing was, this was it's funny, it's funny to talk about. Um, it's probably my favourite season I've ever played where I experienced some of the biggest hardship I've ever had in my personal life. Um, so going into, you know, Northern, life was all right. Uh, and then that late in that year, my, my father had a heart attack. Uh, and that that really sort of made me look at my life and his life quite a lot. Yeah, and, definitely. Um, then further into a couple of months later, um, I had to go to the hospital because I had a mental breakdown. A full-on, you know, panic attack. I can't cope with life, mental breakdown. I'd, I'd wake up every morning, uh, have a panic attack because I was stressed out with life. I was stressed because of my dad. I was stressed because, you know, I was depressed. I was anxious. Uh, but Quidditch was sort of that one thing that I was like, well, if I keep trying this, this can go better because, you know, I'm, I've got responsibilities to Raptors, I've got responsibilities, you know, to the community as part of Team UK, and I'm I'm gonna keep going at this. And I was like, no matter what happens, no matter how sad I am or anxious I am, Quidditch was the one thing I could always get myself out of bed for. Like work, I'd struggle. I'd lay there and think, you know, sorry, this is getting quite deep, but I was That's like, all right. I was like, uh, you know what, like you know, I don't want to go to work, you know. And then you start to have those dark thoughts that everyone talks about with depression, you know, suicide and things like that. And I was like, Christ, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a hole here. Like mentally, I'm in an absolute hole. But, but Raptors sort of kept me going. And I was like, no, because you've, you've got to prove everyone wrong, mate. You've got to get out of bed and, and show them that, you know, Jay Holmes isn't, isn't this laughing stock of a bloke? Jay Holmes isn't just this this garbage player that's being carried. You, you've got to go out there. You've got to get up. You've got to shake off this panic attack that you're having. And you've got to get to training, mate. And you've got to, you know, look after yourself a bit. And that made me so motivated where sort of my reason for for being alive was being successful with Raptors. and. Lots of people listen to this and say, you know, he's just fishing for sympathy or he's, he's being dramatic. But I was in such a bad place mentally. But it was the one thing, rightly or wrongly, that I could focus on. And I could go, you're going to look back on this season when you've succeeded. And you're going to be able to say, look what you did. Look what you survived. You, Your father's ill. You're 
a mess, but you've managed to achieve so much in this thing that you care about. And I think maybe that had an effect. I didn't tell any of the team. Some of them don't know. Um, if you're listening, thanks for all the support that you didn't know you were giving me. Um, and that sort of spurred me on. Like I had such a fire uh, to compete. And I, I, I think maybe for, for me and for the effect on the club, that might have been the difference. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like you had obviously a very rough period in your personal life. But I guess what what sports give us and what Quidditch gives us is that outlet to have a place where we can shine and we can be our best selves and we can really express mm. ourselves. Um, and I guess the whole idea of there's some like motivational quote somewhere is like, oh, you've got to want to succeed as much as you want to breathe. And that was quite literal for you, I guess, in a sense. And yeah. uh, that really kind of contributed to your passion, your drive behind the team and that sort of will to succeed. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like it was, it was what kept me going. Like the, the reason I went to work was so I could go to Quidditch. I, I hated going to work. Um, I, was, I was miserable. But I was like, I, I'd sit there and I would go, it's only 20 days, then you've got Quidditch again, mate. And then, you know, for that weekend, you can be all right. So we just got to get through these 20 days of teaching, get through what I knew was going to be at least 20 panic attacks. And I was like, once we're through that, mate, you get that weekend where you, you get to shine. You get to be big Jay Holmes. You get to be captain of Raptors. You know, you get to be this Team UK guy. And that that's what got me through it, mate. Knowing that there were people that were relying on me uh, and knowing that I, you know, I promised people success and mm. I was going to deliver it to them. Yeah, that's very honest of you. And uh, of course, it obviously sounds quite difficult, but we always say, and especially with, I guess, more of a focus on mental health in the last few years in general society, it's great to hear you speak so openly about your struggles and yeah, like raise awareness for someone else who might be in a similar position. Yeah, like, I I'm not ashamed to talk about it. It's like a lot of people. So when I grew up, you know, we were, we were, we were poor. Um, and people get really awkward when I say that. And I'm like, well, we were. That's life, mate. You know, we're not poor now. We're, we're very middle class now. That's great. And, you know, yeah, I, my mental health used to be absolute toilet. It still is some days. There are still periods where, you know, the, the dark thoughts come back and I feel depressed and I feel anxious. But that's just about who you are. And I think I'd be doing myself a disservice if I didn't talk about that because that's part of me. And, you know, it's mm. not. It's not pleasant to talk about. It's certainly not a, a sexy topic, but no. <laughs> it, it's part of who I am. And it, it's part of what's driven me to be successful in Quidditch in my life. So I'm, I'm never going to be ashamed to talk about that. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a very good message to have. The, definitely good to speak out and have those problems out in the air to, to share with people. Um, so we're going to get back to the Quidditch now. Um, obviously you had this amazing historic moment going back to back BQC wins um, doing very well um, it didn't go quite to plan in 2019 though where Raptors went into BQC on, in search of more history with the prospect of a free peat on the cards however you came short in the semi-finals in a heavy defeat to London Quidditch Club 
So what do you feel had changed that season compared to the previous two? Uh, yeah, yeah, that that was a tough old season because we we won EQT um, and we we played a bit of a blinder at EQT, which I was quite happy with. We were without Lucy and without Callum for a lot of the season. Um, not to make excuses, but I think that definitely contributed towards our performance. Uh, the one thing I will say, because I know Seb's listening, um, LQC played an absolute blinder on us. Like an, an absolute blinder. They they knew what we were good at and didn't let us do it. And they knew what we were bad at, which was, you know, defending the pass consistently and effectively and did that loads. And, you know, Tom Stevens was one of the, the best players in the game at that point. Absolutely minced us. Uh, Seb absolutely minced us. So props to them. You know, they were, they were fantastic. Um, we were probably training less. I was experiencing probably my first burnout of Quidditch, which meant I, I wasn't leading as well as I had. I wasn't taking care of myself um, as much, which probably had an effect, you know, on the performance of the team because they could probably see I was struggling, you know, a bit more, uh, which which slowed us down, which which wasn't, wasn't great. Um, you know, I was probably burning the candle at both ends a bit too much, at training and outside of training to try and cope with a few bits. Uh, but I think we just, we didn't adapt our style enough. And I think maybe a bit of complacency got in because we were so dominant uh, in almost everything we did. And then LQC came out with, Seb probably had the same drive to succeed that I'd had the previous season. You know, like when, when wanting to win sets your soul on fire. And it's really quite hard to stop someone who's that motivated, you know, when they're having an impact on a team. Um, but mm. I, we just got outplayed by LQC. Um, it's not a loss that I lose sleep over. Um, they they played phenomenally. And I think to make any other excuse would be to discredit how hard all of those players worked. Yeah, I think that's a very good you know, overall assessment of that there. And, uh, Obviously, with kind of the emotional toll the the previous season had on you, both yeah. in in inside the sport and outside of it, there was always inevitably going to be some drop off somewhere. Yeah, like it's um, a lot. A lot of people talk about like the, the cost of doing something, um, and you know, like e everything has a cost. So you, there's a monetary cost, there's a physical cost, there's a mental cost, and you know how I can sort of sell it to myself is. The, the cost for that success, uh, my first year of captaincy was, you know, parts of my body uh, are injured forever. And, you know, the the mental toll that took on me affected me the next season. Uh, and that's that's life, isn't it? You know, you, you can't win all the time. Um, I'm, I'm very, very aware of that. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get on to, you know, the summer that links those two seasons together. But, you know, you, you don't get anything for free. And and I, I paid my dues, you know. I, I often joked about selling my soul to the devil for success, um, <laughs> and and that was the season that he asked for it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess kind of referencing that summer and maybe slightly before that. Um, not that you like being reminded about it, so <laughs> apologies for piling on the misery here. Um, the Raptors' record in Europe has been probably less than desirable by your high standards and the high standards of the team 
um, with fourth place in 2018 being your highest finish in what was a painful loss to the Meta Unicorns. I know you spend a lot of time talking about this big loss in the third place playoff. But could you tell us about that tournament experience and that game experience and also why you feel Raptors and I guess the UK in general have struggled to reach the summit in Europe despite playing in probably the most competitive NGB? Yeah, so going into that EQC, I I was probably the most motivated for success I've ever been in my life. Like my my soul was firmly on fire for Quidditch at that point. Um, And then the wheels started falling off before we could even go. Uh, So we took 14 players to that tournament because some people were injured, um, some people couldn't go. But I was like, 14, we're closer than ever. You know, I was relying on the old classic Jay Holmes charisma to carry us through. And the people that I spent that tournament with are definitely some of the people that I'm closest with on Raptors. But by this point, me and James are are the closest we've been. You know, we've got great synergy. Um, James was obviously and still is a, a much more gifted player than I am. But I felt like I'd earned the respect of the team going into this EQC and we were we were firing, we were cooking. Uh, and then the day two rolls around, everyone's injured. Everyone is absolute, you know, master blasted. Um, I'm I'm banged up and, you know, I'm not the not known for my remarkable athleticism at the best of times. Bill's legs hanging off. Lucy's got heat stroke. James back's knackered. Sarah has, has broke a wrist like it, it's all falling apart so we come up sorry to give you a painful memory Fraser we come up against <laughs> yeah, <that> uh, <laughs> this was the game that I was like we've got to survive this if I win this game no matter what happens Raptors will be more successful than they were last year so if I win this game I've achieved my goal of you know a bit of history the Jay Holmes legacy and I gave probably the most compelling team talk I've I've ever given in my life I talked about you know everyone wanting us to lose how we had to do it for our our fans for our families and there's there's a Bill Parcells quote he's an American football coach who's it's a really stupid quote that I I lived by and it was no one can ever say you couldn't do it if you go out and you do it and that's sort of what I had I was like no one can ever say we didn't do this if we just go out and we smash it. The Southampton game was a rough start, um, but we managed through, you know, shit, deter- uh, sheer grit, determination, uh, a bit of luck uh, to win, uh, which put us into the semi-final. And that's the only time in my life that I've cried from being happy. Uh, because for me, I was like, right, you, you've done it. You, you've made it. You've got Raptors in the semi-final. Your, your legacy, mate. No one can take this away from you now. So I was like, yes. We go up against Dodos. We, I'm like, come on, we'll play this smart. The injuries are, are really hurting us at this point. Uh, we come up against Dodos and then me and Sepa basically decide that we're going to see who's got the better snitch on pitch game. So I run into Sepa. Sepa tackles me. A man comes and lays on top of me and Sepa. And we both lay there and we go, right, it's down to the beaters now. Down to snitch on pitch. And uh, we come painfully close to catching lots. uh, And we lose. And I've, at this point when we lose, I've lost all of the feeling in my right arm. 
from where this very large man has laid on top of me. I go off. I have a bit of a cry. I bring the team in. I'm like, we've got the third place playoff here. We can do this. You lean on me. Trust me. I know that we can do this. So we're playing and you watch the footage back. It is it's hard to watch for how banged up we are. The, the Turkish team, unicorns are so motivated. They're playing so well. They're playing at like twice the speed we are. Um, and there's there's me and my banged up leg limping around. I played pretty well that game, to be fair, thankfully. Um, we take it to overtime. And I was like, right, just give me a good five minutes. And, and a lot of players I coach will talk about the magic of a, a Jay Holmes five minutes because it lasts about three days. <laughs> uh, but I say, give me a good five minutes. Give me a good five minutes. We can do this. And this was the one time I was like, you give me your best five minutes you've ever given me. And, uh, and we've got a medal at EQC. Little banged up, 14 player, injury stricken, Jay Holmes mid-breakdown. We can do it. And uh, overtime was happening and we were one goal up. 30 seconds left. They had the ball. Uh, we knew that even if they scored, we were going to get it back. So we were confident. We were like, the, the game's in the bag here. We, we've won this. And I was I was starting to get quite emotional on the sideline, and uh, and then you know our beater, um, whichever side of the coin you you flip on, um, either missed their seeker from very close range three times, or their seeker was beaten. It wasn't called. Um, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Uh, we lost with thirty seconds left on the clock, uh, and this is the the only loss that I still think about probably every day in some capacity um it's the only loss that still bothers me quite a lot just for how close i came to you know getting that medal and then and then cementing you know the, the jay holmes legacy i'd have been very very ready to step back from quidditch had we won that and uh obviously you know we we lose that game uh, going into World Cup, we come fourth place against Turkey in some irony that wasn't lost on me. <laughs> and and then, you know, with Mermaids, I come fourth. So that was a tough summer. In regards to, to why do we struggle against, you know, in Europe, I think, you know, we've had werewolves come third. Raptors coming fourth with a bunch of corpses probably isn't isn't too bad of an achievement. Um, no, certainly not. But, you know, other teams are training so regularly. Like, you look at when Louis and Seppa were playing with Dodos, they've they played together since they were in the womb. You know, they've got they've got that synergy. Um, and I think, you know, the Europeans were just taking it more seriously than we were for a good couple of seasons. But at the end of the day, it swings on one game. And usually it swings on a snitch catch. And you can't predict those. You can do all the training in the world, but you can't. You can't make it happen all the time. And that's why we fell short. So it's tough. But, you know, for every for, for the Turks to be happy, there's got to be a miserable, you know, overweight Englishman. And, uh, and that was sadly <laughs> me. Yeah, certainly sounds like it. And, uh, thanks for retelling what was obviously quite a momentous, but yeah, ultimately painful experience. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, I guess kind of touching your point there about, I guess, British teams in Europe. Although we do have probably, I'd say definitely like the hardest NGB, like winning BQC is a massive achievement for any team that does it. Yeah. More so than, I guess, 
other European countries because there's, there's just so much competition. Uh, you go in, there's maybe three, four, sometimes five teams that could realistically win it. Yeah, and I feel, I feel like a lot of teams, they kind of, because you have the narratives going on through the regional regional uh, tournaments and other fixtures throughout the year, that that takes so much time and effort off the British teams. And then going to Europe, they're, they're just emotionally, well, I guess physically in some cases, spent. So the idea of going to Europe and sort of really committing to winning a European Championship is a bit of an afterthought because you spend so much time sort of trying to win the British Cup first and then it takes some real, I think, mental fortitude to go, right, well, we've got to be the best in Europe now. Whereas the likes of Antwerp, Titans, Unicorns, they're all spending long periods of the season, obviously playing very hard and training hard, but they're really focusing on that number one spot. Yeah, like going from the the fabled Raptors Warwick game uh, into that EQC, it definitely like I, I the fire was still burning inside me, but we were definitely starting to, you know, during that day two of EQC is when everyone was running out of petrol mentally and physically, um, and I think it's a testament to all those players that we managed to get as far as we did. But I, I think you're right. Like if you're if you're some NGBs winning your winning your national championships an afterthought, whereas you know for us you have to put a lot of effort into it. But I think that's that's part of it. It's the same in every sport. Uh, I think I'm not going to make excuses for it. You know the the best team is always the one that wins, and that's that's just part of sport. Yeah, exactly. You can't can't deny that. Um, yeah. So just kind of to back up on that. Uh, you did tell me well, a couple of weeks back you had a theory based around this uh, unicorns loss that Raptors had linked to Team UK's performance at the World Cup. Could you elaborate on that? Yes, it's time for the time for the hot take that I'm sure many, many people <laughs> listening. To what are many in uh, this yeah. this episode? I believe they'll go. He, he's full of rubbish. Um, I, I honestly think if Raptors take that third place playoff in overtime to beat unicorns when team uk are in the third place playoff against turkey i think team uk win uh the reason for that is the coaches will be in a position and some of the players where they know they can do it you know myself i'm i'm an optimist i'm motivated team but i'm going into team uk turkey going goodness me you know turkey just pulled the, the chair out from under me you know a couple of months ago Whereas if if I've won that, myself, James, Lucy, going, going, yes, you know, was Lucy, well, myself and James going, saying, yes, we, we can do this. We can smash this. Um, and I think it just, it shifts the mindset of all of Team UK because some of us have fallen short against Turkey. And I think maybe if some of the players and the coaches are approaching that game from a different mindset, because um, the, the, the wounds of EQC were still fresh. Uh, that we 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 come out and we we win that game. Um, it's just a theory I I think I've got. Um, it might be rubbish, and I'm sure the Turks will, will say it's rubbish. Uh, but I think you know Raptors losing that was was quite a, a big instigator of performance. And maybe if they win that game, Team UK approach Turkey with a different mindset. Uh-huh. Definitely a, a hot take there. Yeah, uh, I'm sure 
on the Turkish side of things, Unicorns winning that gave them some real belief that when it came to that third place game that they could win it as well. A hundred percent. Works both ways. You looked at the Unicorn players when we we lined up Team UK Turkey. They they believed they had it in the bag because they were going, well, we, we beat Raptors. You know, we've beaten everyone else to get to this semi-final, so we can beat Team UK. They they were motivated from that win. I'm sure of it. Yeah, uh, for sure. But, you know, that's... Once again, you, you can't win it all. I try my best to, but <laughs> you can't always. That's for sure. And just to backtrack on that EQC experience, um, just a disclaimer, we don't condone people playing with injuries so please don't follow the, <laughs> the example oh, set out yeah, here yeah. <laughs> that should probably should, should be said yeah yeah 100 percent. like playing with the injuries was foolish but i think that was i would never demand anyone to play with an injury like bill spoke to me and he was like my my knee's gone and i was like bill don't play and he was like no i'm playing we're, we're seeing this job out and it would be really easy to say, well, Jay, you should have just not let him play. Uh, but I saw the the passion that he had was the same one that I had. And I was like, let's roll the dice because I can fix my body whenever, but I'm not going to get another shot at this. And that was, you know, the, the dice that we chose to roll. Um, did it affect mm-hmm. us in the long term? Probably. But... I think when you're an incredibly motivated sports person, it's it's idiotic choices like that are the ones you make. Yeah. Whereas now, now, honestly, if you've got an injury, please rest it. It's not worth it. It is not <laughs> worth it. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, yeah. Bill, Bill's a hard man to say no to. Yeah. <laughs> at yes. the best of times. <laughs> um, so we're just going to touch a little bit more on your captaincy before we mm. move on to the next sort of bit of the episode. Um, so I guess how would you describe your approach to captaincy and is it different to the way you coach and kind of a further question on top of that um, so as captain at Raptors how how do you feel you've managed to promote a positive team culture despite the limited contact time because for those who don't know uh, the nature of the team means with everyone spread out Raptors can only train once a month one weekend a month um, so it's it's not the most ideal circumstances. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, of course. So I think my, my captaincy and my coaching are probably uh, similar. As a coach, I'm, I'm probably a bit more serious. Um, but all, all of it comes down to like, uh, there's a lot of jokes. Like I just try and be the, the man of the people. Um, I try and be quite personable uh, and quite motivating. Um, I, I think I'm fairly charismatic, which sounds egotistical, but I think it's true. Um, I think I'm, I'm quite good at talking, which helps. Uh, but the other thing is I, I always try and just lead by example. Like, um, I work hard at training um, as captain. I'm not the best player, uh, but, I'll, but I'll give it my all. Like, I will, I will play till I can't. Um, and I, I'm honest. I'm honest about myself, and I'm, I'm honest with my players. I'm honest about what we're trying to achieve. Um, and I just try and, once they're on board with that honesty, and they see that there's no sort of facade, which I think a lot of the community think I have, that there's this big, you know, big Jay Holmes, bravado, lads, 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 we're going to turn up to training and down Jaeger bombs and, you know, drink each other's urine. Like, it's it's not like that at all. I, I'm quite a, 
uh, honest, simple guy. Um, and I just try and treat people with mutual respect, try and, you know, treat them how I'd like them to treat me. Um, sometimes I've been treated pretty poorly by the community. Um, and I'm also willing to just take a take a risk on people and what they're like, because I, I know what a risk I was to take in for Banger and for Raptors and want to give other people that chance. Um, I, I think as well, I've got a bit of an edge. I think there's no denying that I'm a bit, you know, bit rough, um, a bit, a bit oi oi, as I'd say. <laughs> uh, but I think that definitely helps my captaincy, like especially when I'm playing, I'll play on the edge. Uh, the reason I play on the edge is I'm a very unremarkable athlete. So I have to, how am I going to compete with the best players in the country? I've got to play to the edge. I've got to try and play the referee. I've got to manage my team and motivate them better. And, and that's always what I've tried to do. You know, I'm not a very bells and whistles captain. I, I just try and do whatever I can that's best for the club. And, and everything I've done as a captain, as a coach, has my club's best interest at heart. Um, building that positive team culture was something that I wanted to do after my first year. I was like, we need to laugh more. We need to like each other. We need to talk more. Um, so I encouraged that, you know, a bit more socialising, a bit more chit chat. Um, you know, let's all sit in one big circle at lunchtime rather than loads of little ones. And there's a there's a Team UK story that I'll tell later on to do with that as well. Um, in lockdown, you know, we have a, a Raptor Zoom call once a week. Uh, but I just try and make sure that I'm accessible. You know, I, I want people to be able to come to me with, with whatever problem they've got and, and know that I'll listen and know that I'll try and solve it. Um, and despite what the community say, I, I do try and be actually very nice to people. Um, and, you know, I, I do want them to get on board with with my ideas. Um, it doesn't always work. But, yeah, I, I think I'm just very, very honest. Mm hmm. It's, uh, it's good to hear. Uh, we've kind of touched on elements of this kind of next section of the episode. Yeah. We're going to dive right into it. Um, so obviously, you mentioned there as a player, you, you play to the edge, and sometimes <laughs> you, you cross that edge and have yeah. a, a little bit of reputation for doing so. Not, not strange to a, a card or two here or there. Um, and then whether it's as a player or as a captain, coach, or just generally as a member of the community... You're a very outspoken person, um, kind of unafraid to say what's on your mind and just kind of be your true self. And I think we've kind of got a good sense of that across the episode so far. However, as a consequence of this, you faced a lot of criticism and animosity and mm. sort of become somewhat of a pantomime villain within, especially within the UK, Quidditch community, and in some cases, further afield. <laughs> And we, we've obviously touched on your battles with mental health and things in your personal life. But how have you been able to deal with this and how, how has it affected you? Yeah, so so on, on the first point about playing to the edge, I just want to make it clear. Um, so I've played 349 games of Quidditch and I've been sent off for contact fouls, two yellows, twice in my career. So I've had four red cards and two of them are for for crossing the line. So I feel like, you know, maybe I, I'm not this, this dirty player that everyone maybe calls me out to be. I think the way I play is a very ugly style of Quidditch. Um, I am not a beautiful Seb Walters, Louis Lemitt. I am, I'm a rough and tumble, uh, 
sort of Quidditch player, which I think probably doesn't help with the reputation. Um, the the first one, uh, I think you have to talk about like is is the animosity justified? Uh, sometimes it is. Um, a lot of times when I was younger, it probably was. I wasn't always a great person. Um, me not caring what anyone thought about me or my friends definitely led me to say some things that weren't particularly great. Um, I treated some people pretty badly, uh, to be honest. Um, but I think some of those decisions that get turned into rumours, which get turned into, you know, Jay Holmes is is doing X, Y and Z. And I'll talk to you about that in a, in a second. Um, how did I deal with it? I basically told myself, you know, ev everything I was doing was to make my team better. And it did make my team better. I think you talk to anyone who's been on, you know, Velociraptors, Banger, Team UK with me. I, I like to think they'd all say that I'm a, a pretty nice bloke. Um, I think a lot of people would rather have me on their team than against their team. Um, and I always just thought, you know what? People are entitled to their opinions. I wouldn't take this person's advice, so why should I take their criticism? Uh, a way that I tried to deal with it is I was watching a documentary about an American football player called Dion Sanders, who was quite a shy guy, um, pretty charismatic, but, you know, got a lot of attention. And how he dealt with it, he said that when he was playing, when he was playing American football, he, he wasn't Dion Sanders anymore. He was prime time. And, and primetime could do all of the things that Deion Sanders couldn't. Primetime could say the things that Deion Sanders couldn't. Primetime could, you know, make the plays that Deion Sanders couldn't. And I sort of took into that a bit. Like with Raptors, with Team UK, I was, I was Jay Holmes. Uh, but to the community, I was, I was big Jay. I was big Jay Holmes. You know, the swan. I was that guy. Um, and all of the slings and arrows didn't matter to big Jay Holmes because... Deep down, you know, Jay Holmes was fine. Jay Holmes was, you know, doing the work that he needed to. Uh, but it, it got to a point where it did it did really start to affect me. Uh, some of the things people were saying about me. So so BQC 2018, um, someone said some quite hurtful things about me to my mother and father, uh, which upset my mum quite a lot um, and upset me quite a lot, especially because of the mental health that I was dealing with at the time. Um, but I really tried to improve my image 2018. Um, I volunteered at everything. It's really nice to everyone. Coached everywhere. Did everything I could. And it didn't matter. The, the rumours, you know, just got worse and worse and worse. So there were rumours like um, Jay Holmes goes out and he's trying to injure people. And honestly, if you're one of those people listening, if I wanted to injure you, you'd never walk again. Like, it's as simple as that. If I wanted to hurt someone, I'd just hurt them. Uh, there was Jay Holmes takes drugs at Merck tournaments, which I was I definitely done. Uh, there was Jay Holmes only picks the women for Team UK that he wants to sleep with and he tries to sleep with them, uh, which is fundamentally untrue. Uh, and, and things like this really did start to get to me. But, you know, I, I knew deep down that, especially now what I'm doing, I'm just trying to improve the cultures I'm a part of. When I was younger, I had a lot of growing up to do. I think being very different to the rest of the community probably didn't help. You know, I, I'm very loud, um, a bit rougher around the edges upbringing wise, um, you know, like a drink, things like that. Uh, I've, I've been at a tournament where a, a 
graduate from a very prestigious university, uh, I overheard them saying, look at Jay Holmes. I don't think we have those people where I'm from. And uh, the, the thing is, is, is all of these things people say, you know, the jokes, the criticism, all, all of that, which gets leveled at me all, all the time. Uh, I'm just supposed to laugh at, take on the chin. Uh, people are, are rude about me to my face. People are rude about me online. People are rude about me behind my back that I hear about because uh, everyone thinks they know me. Everyone thinks that, that they can take a slice out of me because they think, you know, they're my friends. They think we've got a relationship. But I think because I'm quite just such a prominent person in the community, everyone thinks that they can take a slice, um, mm. sort of mock me. It's the 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 comparison I'm about to make isn't to, to grandiose myself, but it's something like in, in the media theory of celebrity culture, you see that when there's someone very prominent but detached, uh, people feel like they can have a, have a pop at them and it doesn't matter. You know, you see it with trolls all the time to sports people, to, you know, actors and, and things like that. They, they think they can have a go because they feel like they know them and they think it doesn't matter. They, they don't treat what they're saying, you know, as it being levelled at a person, they see it being levelled at an idea. Um, and sometimes that was really hard to deal with. Like my, a lot of my friends would say to me, how does it feel being the most hated man in our community and i'd, I'd laugh that off I'd be like, oh you know it's all we lads bravado big jay yeah. yeah but it, it it hurt man like going to a tournament and you know putting all your time and effort into making a sport better just to see people think absolutely nothing of you and and also knowing that without i'm going to be brutally honest without me I don't think Quidditch is as good as it is in the UK. I think I've done a lot of stuff that's improved it. Um, but like there's there's a few examples. Like uh, there was a Steel City, uh, the most recent one. I took a team, the Monstars, made up of, you know, Mermaids, Archers, some other people. Decent team, good team. Uh, we went there, did loads of volunteering, helped out, murked for people, uh, got told we'd ruin the event by bringing a team. And when myself and James went up to collect the trophy, they said, and the winners are Monstars. And not one person clapped. Not one mm. person did anything. I'd clapped for everyone. Third place, second place, whatever. Cheered people on. Uh, no one clapped. And I was looking around and I was like, I've never even interacted with a lot of you. The reason the reason you hate me is because your friends told, told you that, that I'm a terrible person. They've said I'm a dirty player. You know, they said that I shoot drugs at a Merck tournament. They said I only, you know, pick the women that I'm trying to sleep with. And it's all utter rubbish. But it's just part and parcel, you know. For me, it's it's easy to blame, quote unquote, the man. Um, you know, there's this guy, probably one of the most prominent figures in the UK. Of course, it's easy to blame him yep. because it means you don't have to address your own issues. The, the issue, I'm really sorry if you're listening. The issue isn't that I didn't want to sleep with you because you weren't good enough for the team um but i think it's it's very easy to find that scapegoat um and if that's what people need to do to cope then then that's their life and i i've definitely lent into it the last mm. couple of years you know I'll, I'll definitely say that i am the villain of the community but you know that's where every hero starts off right you see yourself as a hero but eventually you're the bad guy to someone yeah for sure i think it's a very honest and yeah quite quite blunt assessment of things there yeah. and uh 
obviously everyone feels like they're the hero of their own story and yeah. in many cases within Quidditch and life people aren't actively going out to do bad things but yeah. it's a lot about image and over time this image has been cultivated and I guess I guess from my kind of observations of it there has been times when yeah maybe you have crossed the line but everyone makes mistakes everyone's crossed the line I know yeah. I have on certain occasions um and it's obviously us to us up to us to realize that and i believe yeah. that you have um There's... obviously obviously as well i guess the other thing would be you mentioned being a scapegoat there and we, we talk a lot about the, the big J holmes brand <laughs> and kind of how synonymous that has kind of become with raptors and kind of their status within the community is this big kind of super team and all of that um so it, in many ways, it was quite easy for a lot of people, I imagine, just to have all their frustrations with Raptors' success and Raptors' dominance within the game and piling it on yourself. Yeah, like there, there's a lot of times I, I play a fun game with myself where it's if I did that, what would the reaction be? And there's some people who have done some really shoddy things in Quidditch that we never talk about. And I'm not going to call them out here because it's not the place. Uh, and it gets sort of swept under and we all forget it. Uh, but the few mistakes I, I've made uh, got dragged through the mud quite a bit, um, which is, that's life. Uh, I find it absolutely hilarious uh, that I get blamed for Raptors. Um, I think a lot of people think it was my idea from the off. Um, and that they're not aware that I was the, the bench warmer who hated being part of the club at various points, which is, is quite amusing. Um, I definitely feel like I'm a captain who puts themselves out there a lot more uh, and just a person in the community that puts themselves out there a lot more um, I think it's easy to blame the captain of the super team, you know, the guy doing the chant the guy giving it to the referee the guy giving it to the other players um, but in some ways I think that's easy um, I'd rather people come at me than come at everyone on my team because as long as people are coming at me it means the rest of my team have chance to focus on their own game. Yeah, for sure. I think, of... um, I think with that idea, because obviously well, we know each other quite well now, and you yeah. draw a lot of inspiration from, from rugby and from other sports. And, uh, Eddie Jones, and the way yeah. he's managed England, has done a lot of that. In the media, he throws out a bomb, says something outrageous, and everyone attacks Eddie and goes, oh, isn't he awful? Yeah. Isn't he just the worst human being and all this yeah. criticism? But then behind the scenes, the England team are totally relaxed. They're focused, they're training. And I guess it's that idea coming through, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Like, I, I want my players to turn up to a tournament, to turn up to training and just worry about how well, how well they're playing. Um, I don't want them to worry about what other people are saying about them. Um, a, a good example of this is like, you never really hear people slag off James Thanangarden, um, who's, who's, you know, one of my best mates, uh, who's, who's probably in equal with me for, for playing on the edge. Um, but he's, he's a quiet guy. Um, but you could look at his play style and moan about him, but you don't because it's a lot easier to moan about me. Um, you look at, you know, some of the players on Raptors that probably play even more physically than I do. They don't get horrible things said about them because everyone's too busy going, look at Jay Holmes, uh, this monster. And that works a treat for Raptors because it means those players can play with freedom 
And whether they know it or not, not have to worry. Because as well, as soon as someone, you know, would get on them, I'm immediately in there in the comments or in person going, no, you can shut up. You know, you don't criticise my players. Um, you criticise me. Come at me. I don't care. But you, you can leave my players alone because they're the people who, who are trying their best. Um, and I think I think that's helped, you know. Lots, you, you, you hear people, you know, they still whisper about Lucy playing to the edge. But I reckon you hear a lot more people moan about what a monster I am than what she is. And it means mm. maybe she gets to play with a bit more freedom. Yeah, for sure. I'd say that's quite honest assessment. And uh, it's good to go to these deep levels and kind of debunk yeah. some of the myths and yeah uh, accusations that people have had. Yeah. And just, yeah. I think the main thing to remind people is kind of the overarching lesson. And you, you hear it all the time with big figures in the media is you don't really know what's going on in people's lives. And you don't yeah. know what they're going through. And as we discussed earlier, you were going through some pretty deep uh tricky things in your life so to have all this extra negativity thrown your way obviously got to you at times but you also presented a very thick skin kind of mm-hmm. laughed off with a bit of humor but yeah ultimately it, it was affecting you and people need to realize that we just need to be nice to each other don't we like it's pure it, and simple isn't it it, it was it amused me um so when seb was talking about like before playing the the bqc final 2018 uh how he was furiously running around you know looking for crisps to lick (laughs) um i was furiously running around looking for somewhere to completely have a meltdown without the team seeing um but i think these are the these are the sorts of stories that you know you're never going to take notice of um and yeah, I, th- I think lots of people will point out that maybe I've not always been the kindest person. Um, but and and if they've got that opinion of, about me now, they're they're more than in their right to to have it. I've not always been the best bloke, but I'm I'm trying my best now to be the best version of myself, and you know, try and try and do myself proud. Yeah, that's all you can do. Um, so we covered some quite deep subject matter there. Um, we're going to bring it back to your coaching career, which we've like kind of discussed already, but it's obviously kind of a major part of what you've done within Quidditch. Yeah. So to start off with, what would you say is your Quidditch philosophy and how would you describe your coaching style, especially within the context of the Team UK setup? Um, I think my my Quidditch philosophy is probably quite boring. It's um, do the simplest thing possible to achieve your goal. Uh, and that's sort of how I approach everything is I want to make it as easy for myself to do whatever I'm trying to do. This does not mean being lazy, but if we can do it with one pass, let's do it with one pass. If we can do it with two cuts instead of four, let's do it with two cuts. Um, I've always think I've been pretty honest and open. Same with captaincy. Um, I'm putting a lot of effort. I'm all about empowering my players. Um, I'm, I'm fully aware that, you know, history would say that I'm, I'm probably quite a good coach, but I'm, I'm not the most tactical coach in the world. I'd, I'd probably say Seb beats me for tactical nuance. 
but I'm about, you know, empowering my players, making them feel valued, making them feel like they have a voice. A lot of times in the past at Team UK, the, the coach would say something, people would disagree and would get, well, I don't care because I'm the coach. And then we'd do it and people would be miserable. Whereas when I was coaching, I'd always say, right, let's talk about it. You know, I've got this idea. I think I'm right. But if you think I'm wrong, pull me to the side. And it's what happened. Like, you know, my first head coaching session, we were doing a drill. Bex Lowe pulls me to the side and says, you know, I think we could do it like this. I'm like, yeah, let's let's try it like that then. Why not? You know, we're all here to try and make each other better. Um, and I think that honesty, that effort um, pays off with a lot of people. But yeah, I'm, I'm just about doing it simple you know practice the fundamentals don't overcomplicate it and let's let's just try and play what we're good at mm -hmm. i think that's quite a good approach to have the especially in quidditch where the sport is still so young and you, we don't have any real true experts on the sport yeah. everyone's got their own way of seeing things they've also got their own holes in in knowledge so to use your players especially in team uk setup who have all got years and years of experience on them, having that sharing of ideas and creating ultimately a version of Quidditch that the team wants to play. Yeah, is, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's a good approach to have. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm all, I want people to be happy when they're playing, which I, I realise is probably a shocking take. Um, <laughs> but I don't want people to be in a system that they despise playing. I think that's what pushes a lot of our women out of the sport, is they're in a system that doesn't work for them. Um, and that's the coach's fault. If players are leaving, you can't just say, well, she needs to accept us place. You go, right, what can we do to engage these players more? Um, and I've always tried to do that. I I've, I've taken the development of, of women in our sport um, quite seriously and put a lot of effort into that, which is probably where these rumours about me have started. Um, yeah. With the likes of, you know, taking, having drills at Team UK where I took all of the female chasers and we we worked on specific you know roles and and actions or, or the likes of running queen's cup I, I want people to be happy when they're playing and that comes down from my, my coaching philosophy my captaincy and also what i'm doing in the sport mm -hmm. fair enough um so taking it back to the beginning of your team uk adventure um <laughs> you met, mentioned it earlier when you joined raptors you also became uh, the assistant head coach of the brand 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 new uh, Team UK expansion squad or yeah. development squad, uh, as it was uh, called then, or affectionately Bev Squad. Bev Squad. Um, but then a few <laughs> months, a few months into that season, you took over uh, from the initial head coach Ollie Craig, um, who unfortunately had to step down and became the full head coach of the expansion squad. Um, so how important was this period in your development as a coach and what did you gain from taking on the role? Uh, yeah, it was it was really important to me. It was my first time where I could approach a squad sort of from a brand new perspective. Um, I learned a lot about myself. Uh, I learned what I knew a lot about and certainly what I didn't know about. Um, but it was my time to sort of put in my culture. Uh, and what I thought a culture should be, a culture of trust, a culture of closeness, a culture of positivity um, and reliance on each other. But it also gave me a time to, you know, cut my teeth on coaching. Some of the drills I had, you know, a, a part of 
Team UK still to this day. And some of the stuff that I suggested we do was hot garbage. Um, but that is that is just the nature of learning. Uh, and I think, you know, I got a lot of buy in from those expansion squad players because they knew that I cared about their development as much as they did. And I think I think it's something like 10 or 12 of the original development squad. Uh, went on to play at European Games uh, last time. So clearly, clearly the, the metric worked and I was doing something all right. Um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun with Expansion Squad, like playing with freedom, not worrying about making mistakes, never having someone to play. Um, so we could try stuff and if it worked great and if it sucked, then we got rid of it. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun and I, I learned a lot about myself as a coach when I was doing it. Mm, sounds fantastic. I think that's a really kind of important point to make that freedom, both for the players who are in the squad, kind of coming up to this higher level, receiving this coaching and sort of being given the license to express themselves and to try things and to fail. And also, as you as a coach, obviously, pretty new to coaching at that point, you yeah. had this opportunity where there wasn't a tournament coming up. There wasn't something that the sort of concrete that you had to work towards you could try these things out and if they work great if they didn't work oh so what we'll go back to the drawing board and we'll think of a better way of making that work which is i guess a freedom a lot of coaches don't have in the game yeah like at banger i was always so scared to innovate i was really really scared to do things differently um there's a, there's a good example of this so in the first tournament i captained banger we were in stitch on pitch against some team and uh they got a beta sent off and in my head i was like what if we just don't score what if i just hold the ball and don't do anything and then we've got a beta for a minute i was like this is genius this is going to change the world uh so we did it and we lost that was an absolutely garbage strategy what are you talking about Holmes? just holding the ball and not scoring that'll be rubbish uh, and then, you know, the, the team that won BQC that year did that quite well. Um, but yeah, X-Band gave me a time to try out lots of new drills, new ideas, new ways of doing anything without sort of the the judgment of the current Team UK and their their ire on quite a new person. Um, so so that, was, that was really good for me to develop as a coach. Mm-hmm. So... Obviously, you made great progress as a captain with Velociraptors. And you kind of progressed through the Team UK coaching setup, being the head coach, well, the assistant coach, then head coach of the expansion squad, and then coming into the full Team UK setup as an assistant coach, um, and then obviously working your way to the top. But uh, despite all this kind of development that you had, you've never actually played international Quidditch for Team UK. Um, I know you might have Team Hong Kong plans in the future, which we won't, we won't discuss because that's a whole other rabbit hole to fall down. But um, anyway, sort of. So you, you you never played for Team UK, and whether rightly or wrongly, this is seen as a benchmark of quality in the community. Um, I guess has it ever been difficult for you to get players to buy into your coaching and captaining methods as a result? Uh, yeah, I, I think not making, not even getting like the call up to try for Team UK is is a blot on what on paper looks a very successful CV. 
Um, which is always a shame. It's the one thing that I think I wanted more than anything uh, was was to just get a chance to try and earn a space in the squad, especially that 2018 season when I when I thought I was playing quite well. But that never came. Um, has it been difficult to getting players to buy in? Uh, into my captaining? No. Um, because of, I think, my style of captaincy. For coaching, uh, for X-Fan, not at all. They bought in straight away. It was sort of the, the group of ragtags, uh, you know, doing it together. Uh, and that was great. Uh, then I went to Team UK training and it was very, very different. Um, X-Fan was sort of my culture. Team UK was not my culture. Um, and I knew that, you know, obviously I wanted to be head coach. I'd, I'd have to get buy-in from these players somehow. So I did everything I could. You know, I, I ran all the drills. I, I helped out. I did admin. I did, a, you know, set up the pitch. I did as much as I could to try and get these players respect. Um, and, and had times where I won't call them by name. Uh, one player uh, had a bit too much to drink and said to me, what have you done that makes you think you deserve to be with us? You're not good enough. Uh, to be here coaching us and that upset me quite a lot uh, and there was there was another time this this, this for me is a, is quite a nice uh, a story that I enjoy it's one of my favourite moments in Quidditch um, so it was one of my first trainings uh, with Timmy K and I've noticed that at lunch everyone ate rubbish like crisps chocolate sweets garbage and I was like right this is a culture we need to train I'm I'm going to try and have a a, a healthy healthy lunch. So I sort of went to Tesco, came back with my, my healthy wrap, my orange juice and some raisins. And everyone was sitting in different circles in their little cliques. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll sit with some of these people. So I sat down, everyone's just having a chat. It's like, oh, what have you got? What, you got? what are you eating that for, Jay? I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be healthier, you know, just be a better version of myself. And uh, one of the players looked at me and said, what, do you think you're an athlete now? And um, and everyone laughed uh, because it's, it's quite funny, to be honest. Um, but I felt really small when she said that. Um, I felt quite embarrassed. I, I, I even felt like a bit ashamed of, of who I was. Um, but then uh, Aaron Veal, who was standing nearby, who, if you don't know Aaron, he's a, a, a small bloke. If you stood us next to each other. Um, but he but he commands respect. Um, I've, I've got a great deal of time for Aaron. Um, and something I noticed was that when this player made her comment, uh, X-Band didn't laugh. Um, they didn't react to it, which I thought, right, we're one step there. I've got some buying. And Aaron came over and said, well, at least Jay's trying. What are you doing? And it all went very silent. <laughs> and I saw the player sort of look at the ground and I don't know if Aaron knew what he was doing, but that that meant a lot to me when he said that and was sort of the moment for me where I was like, Aaron gets it. In this moment, Aaron, Aaron sort of gets what I'm trying to do here. So you fast forward to my second head coaching training at Team UK. Uh, all of Team UK are sitting in, in one close circle together. No one's in their own little clique. Uh, we're all sitting in a big circle together. And the topic of conversation was who had the healthiest lunch. Wow. And 
Seb, Malpass and Jacopo were talking about how they were, you know, eating seeds to bulk up. Um, I think like uh, McCartney was talking about like his high protein diet. Um, Callum was talking about like how he'd cooked this lunch at home. Crofty, Matt Croft was there probably talking about his protein shakes. And everyone was laughing and, and no one was the butt of the joke in a horrible way. Like we all laugh at each other. I'm not myself. Everyone does. Um, and I was sitting there looking at this circle of players with their healthy lunches who had all bought into this culture of positivity. And I was like, this, this is the moment where I, I feel like I've done it. I, I feel like I've, I've really achieved something here. I've got ex spam people that have been with me since day one. I've got the, the respect of, Every player here, I've worked myself up to be, uh, it might be, you know, arrogant to say, probably one of the best coaches in England, potentially one of the best coaches in Europe. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is it. I'm, I'm glad I, I tried with those raisins three years ago because it's, it, it matters now. It's, it's worked. They've, they've bought into what I want to do. And it took me a little bit longer than I'd hoped to get to that spot, but I got there eventually. Wow, it's, it's quite. Uh, I mean, we're only talking about lunch here, but that's quite a powerful, yeah, like, little uh, story you got there. But, uh, yeah. I, I I do feel one of the issues, and it, it it's a difficult one to solve. But part mm. of it, in, in terms of just the coaching setup within Quidditch in general, not just from the UK, is having, I guess, like a lack of a qualification system, which you don't formally have yet, unfortunately. Yeah, it means that there isn't that that benchmark that we can go okay this person is a certified quidditch uk coach and they they have done all this training and they they've got this qualification that proves they they are the business Um, so it comes down to who who's a great player and obviously you well you're not a bad player but you obviously haven't reached that high standard and people go oh well, if they're not on Team UK, that their opinion doesn't matter as much. But yeah, I think it's up for people to kind of have their ideas and be take a few risks as you, as you've done, um, and kind of have these open discussions. Because at the end of the day, the sport's still very new, sports very young, and some people have good ideas, some people don't. But we need to discuss them and uh, improve ourselves collectively, and not kind of shoot people down. Yeah, exactly. And like, I understand it. Um, I understand why people wouldn't listen. Uh, but it's why I try and give everyone a time of day with their ideas now. I think it's really easy to to tear people down and, and laugh at people. It's definitely something I did when I was younger. Um, but you know, you grow up and you, you realise if people are asking the questions, it's because they if people are trying to change something, it means they care. And I, I really don't think you should ever mock someone for trying to make a difference mm-hmm. so this is kind of the, the golden question <laughs> and um one that we asked ash about in his episode it's kind of for the people outside of the team uk setup it's what they really want to know so for the sake of clarity for all those players out there who have aspirations and dreams of making team uk in some in some way in the future can you say what you as now the former head coach and former head coach of expansion squad what do you look for 
in players across the different tiers in the setup? Like, what's the what criteria and characteristics are you looking for in players? Firstly, for expansion squad, then the training squad, and then to get on the Team UK roster for these big tournaments like World Cups, European Games, that kind of thing. What's that progression look like? Um, they're they're all they're all similar similar traits. It's just that the level that we're expectant of them. Uh, so a decent level of fitness is always appreciated. Um, I, for me, I always look for a good understanding of fundamental skills. There was a lot of my early Team UK career where I would be given a set of players and the sole task would be to teach them to throw, um, which served me quite well because I'm, I'm quite good at that, uh, but also felt like a massive waste of time where if a player can't throw why am i why are they here um so a good you know ability of fundamental skill is always appreciated it's all well and good moaning that you don't get on team uk but if you can't throw and catch there's there's a pretty obvious reason uh i always look for hard work um i want someone who doesn't give up i want someone who's who's gunning it you know who who clearly cares vocal you know it's okay to be angry when you've lost it shows me you care i always look for that um, a bit of an edge, uh, you know, doesn't always doesn't always hurt. I like someone who's, who's going to try and do everything they can to try and win. Um, but there's there's no secret formula like a lot of people think they're trying to earn a squad on like a, a 35 Team UK roster. Whereas in actuality, uh, you're, you're probably competing against like, four other people for your very specific role, because it's all well and good saying you're a chaser. But what type of chaser are you? Are you a playmaker? Are you a driver? Are you a, a receiver? Can you do a bit of everything? You know, what are you trying to do? And I think just work on your game. Pestering people that you've not been noticed is the, the surefire way to get rejected. You don't want someone with a, a toxic or negative attitude, which we've certainly had in the past. Um, I, I want someone who's, who's going to buy in to be positive, to take advice you know, from important people when it's given to them. But there is no formula. It's just try and be the, the best version of yourself. And if you're right for the coach, you'll get picked up. If you're not right for the coach, you won't get picked up. You know, like there, there was a point where I thought I was a, a shoe-in. Well, maybe not a shoe-in, maybe a toe-in for, for Team UK, um, but didn't get the call-up. Um and it's all in good sitting and being bitter about it. But sometimes you're not the pick for that coach. So you just keep trying your best, keep playing your role. And if you're the right person, you'll get picked up. And, and it's as simple as that, basically. Mm -hmm. so, sorry, there's no like golden answer. It's just, <laughs> it's just try incredibly hard and try and get better. Um, yeah, it's, I think that's the same for, for most. Mm -hmm. I hope... Uh... All the future TBK prospects been taking yeah. notes about that. But the overarching thing is get better and have the right attitude to yeah. improving yourself, really. I guess kind of looking at coaching more generally, what's the biggest lesson you've learned in your coaching career? And what advice would you have for someone who maybe wants to get into coaching their, their, their club team or their university team or maybe at a higher level internationally? What... What wisdom do you have to share? Uh, I think one of the first things is is you've always got to try and be curious. You've always got to try and learn. Um, never assume you know everything because you don't. Um, I've, I've got maybe 
30 books on my bookshelf that I've read about coaching, about sports mentality, about the culture of teams uh, that I've, I've all used to try and improve myself as a coach, as a captain, as a leader. Um, with coaching, you've got to be confident in your ideas. If you don't believe in your ideas, then why should anyone else? Um, but the main thing is be willing to adapt. Don't just think, well, this is how they do it in the USA. So that's how I've got to do it. Uh, Raptors do it. So it's clearly the best strategy. You know, LQC werewolves do it. So it's clearly the way to win. I think you've got to you've got to trust your own ideas. You've got to try things out. Sometimes you've got to roll the dice. It, it won't always work. But every every time you fail, it's an opportunity to learn. You learn what you did well. And there's always a lesson in something. But I think it's it's seek out that knowledge. A, a real problem I have with Quidditch coaches at the moment is my one, and I sound like a proper like boomer Quidditch player here. Uh, they want everything given to them. They think that you can read one training manual, and suddenly you can become you know the next Big J Holmes. Uh, whereas when I started coaching, there were there were no resources, uh, and I had to search it out myself. I looked at basketball, American football, rugby coaching, read all the books about coaching leadership under the sun. Some were complete guff. Um, some have actively shaped how I am as a man and as a, as a leader. Uh, but I think it's, you've got to constantly search for knowledge. You've got to watch footage. You've got to watch games. You've got to ask questions to players. Why did you make that decision? Why did you do that? What did you see? Don't run a defence win that defence and go, right, well, we've won that, so that's going to work every time. You've got to talk to the offence and the defence about their ideas. Engage with your players. It's about constantly questioning what you're doing and try and, and boiling that down to, to one idea, one metric, one message that you can give to people. Make it as simple as possible and then deliver it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's some pretty solid advice there. The kind of thinking about I guess sort of teaching as a profession and also just education in general, having that lifelong learning attitude yeah. is massively important. Um, I know we mentioned Eddie Jones earlier. That's something he talks openly about and uh, is, is, is very valuable because there's always something new you can pick up somewhere, whether that's within Quidditch or in other sports. And I guess also the other thing to take away from that is being, being able to kind of think for yourself and mm. make up your own mind. There's a lot of people who kind of just, they're yes people. They kind of accept ideas because so-and-so says it, or as you said, they do it in the US or whatever. But you've got to critically think, okay, that's something that's happened. That's something that someone said. You go, do I agree with that? Hmm, I'm not sure if I do. And either trying to further understand that perspective or try to put your own stint on it so that it makes sense to you. And yeah. We kind of lack that independent thought. Yeah, something that cracks me up is when, like, well, not cracks me up, but I, I find amusing is when, like, mid-low-level teams try and directly replicate what the high-level teams are doing. And it's like, why would you do this? You know, your focus should be throwing and catching and a very simple defense. There is no point trying to play like Raptors or LQC. It's sort of like scaffolding. You've got a base first and you build up. You don't put the top layer of the scaffolding up and then look surprised when it falls down. In the same way that I can I can watch US footage and it's easy to go, oh yeah, but you know, that's what Oggy Monroe does. 
And it's like, well, that, that's fantastic. But but sadly, I, I'm not Oggy Monroe. Or going like, oh, but that's how Lucy plays, or that's how Karina Werner plays. And it's like, yeah, but you, you should never try and be another player. You should always try and be yourself. Like, so many parallels got drawn between me and Andrew. Uh, a lot of people calling me, like, a poor man's Andrew Hull. Uh, whereas I, I just like to be the common man's Jay Holmes. <laughs> but people are like, oh, God, how does it feel? You know, you're constantly bench warming for Andrew. Andrew does this, Andrew does this, Andrew does this. And I, I, Andrew's one of my closest friends. And it's like, yeah, I'm bench warming for, at the time, one of the best keepers in the world. You know, like that, that's not really a slight on my ability. Like, oh, I'm, I'm not one of the best keepers in the world. Heartbreaking. So I'll just try and be the best version of myself. And when I do well, great. And if I don't do well, well, you know, luckily we had we had for some seasons Andrew to save the day. Other times I saved the day on my own. But that's just the nature of it. You should you should always just try to be the best version of you as a player, not a carbon copy of someone else. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of finding that balance between your own identity and also taking inspiration from others and adding those into your overall yeah. Over, overall identity yeah 100 percent. super um so just kind of looking at the last season kind of your tenure as sort of team uk head coach mm. um, i guess that yeah sort of more recent stuff so obviously you're the, the assistant in 2018 2019 and then when james van and garden stepped down as head coach in 2019 after the european games you stepped up and became the head coach. Finally, had <laughs> access to that job that you were you applied for in 2016. You finally got yeah. to the, the summit, and you were leading Team UK into World Cup 2020 in Richmond, getting really excited for the tournament, getting everything ready. And then COVID happens, everything's cancelled, um, and I guess that kind of real crowning moment of your coach career disappears. Yeah. So what what kind of progress were Team UK making going into the tournament? And how do you feel Team UK has changed since your initial involvement with it? Um, I think before I took over, a lot of Team UK had fallen out of love with the game. Um, and the first thing that I wanted to do was make us enjoy the game, have some fun and enjoy each other. Spend time together. Like we did some indoor sessions where we talked about some open and very frank conversations about our, our motivation for playing. Um, some of that got quite teary with some people, I, I won't say, but, you know, people really bearing their souls. Um, things like sit, going for lunch together, supporting each other in drills, you know. We did a thing I introduced uh, that, that got the mockery of many uh, called Timmy K Union. Uh, so what this was is at the end of every session, we'd sit in a, a big circle and we'd have a bit of a chat about the session where anyone was allowed to say anything. And sometimes I'd have a task like, uh, you know, tell the player, tell a player something they did really well or tell a player something you think they can improve on. Or who do you think put the most effort in today and why? Or who do you think needs to maybe buck their ideas up a little bit more? And these are really awkward to start off with. Uh, but this was me sort of putting my, my culture out as a stall that we were going to be a team that was honest open um and, and built on you know loving each other as corny as it sounds um, <laughs> and being that you know supportive family having a group chat where we talk to have fun not just talk about quidditch 
where we engaged with each other social lives you know I, I wanted to care I wanted players to understand that I cared about them and that everyone else cared about them and that culture change sort of promoted a love of the game I, I tried to be incredibly positive try and make drills fun try and make games meaningful which meant you know people started caring about their fitness a lot more uh, they were playing with freedom playing with happiness a, a lot of times in the past of team UK it was you've done that wrong and then it was a big issue. I was like, you've done that wrong. Do you know why you've done it wrong? Right. How are we going to make sure it doesn't happen again? Let's move on. You know, what do you want to improve on? Let's focus on that. What is going to give me the best version of you? And I think, you know, that wasn't my tactical brilliance. That was me looking at players for the people that they truly are, accepting them for, you know, their faults, their flaws, their, their good and their bad in the same way that, that they did to me. And I think, I'm really hoping whoever takes over, I've, I've got a, a good idea of who it's going to be, um, but I hope they're able to, to carry on that message. It's, it's very hard for me knowing that this is something that I've worked for for five years and I'm never going to get, never, never going to, you know, see it through to fruition and, and reality. But that is, that is the nature of things. I, I, I'm hoping that part of the, the Jay Holmes DNA can be in that squad that goes on to do great things. Mm-hmm. Sounds uh, quite wholesome, really. And, uh, yeah. I think it kind of just the very basic point that if you are in this sort of tr training setup and you're working towards this common goal, You've got to get along to some extent. You've got to yeah. enjoy yeah. the company of the people you're doing this with and you're having this journey. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. it's not it's not going to work out and you're not really going to enjoy yourself. So creating that culture, obviously, has had a positive effect on uh, the team and hopefully, yeah, something we see continue with it. Yeah, like one of the, the first training I was in charge, we did a fitness evaluation. Uh, I couldn't care actually, I couldn't care less about the fitness evaluation. Uh, but I paired people up who I thought had never spoken to each other and then forced them to be motivating and in each other's company for about half an hour. And things like that just broke the ice, you know? Once mm -hmm. players felt they could talk to each other for a reason, it, it opens up everything. And, you know, when we're doing the fitness challenges, we're all cheering for each other. We're all supporting each other. There's friendly competition. It, it's great. It's fun. But it's building towards a goal. And I think... I think people really bought into that. Part of my leadership style is you're either all in or you're out. And I think I'd got to the point where, you know, that packet of raisins earlier, everyone had finally bought into it. Fantastic. Uh, so we've got a couple more questions on the main section. I do realise this is quite a long episode. Yeah. So everyone who's stuck with us, that you're doing fantastic. <laughs> um, but it's great to hear all of the, these insights. Um, so obviously you kind of mentioned earlier that you feel you've had this big impact on the UK community um, and that, that's really undeniable that you, you've definitely had an impact whether you think that's positive or negative one that's your own perspective but it's a fact you had an influence on people whether that's as a player coach or just a personality what would you say has been your biggest contribution to UK Quidditch uh, it's a tough one I think like on a base level Defy, defy being a successful player without being a top level player. Um, I like to think it's probably quite 
motivational for some people. There's things like doing Queen's Cup, uh, taking the risk on that, I think was quite a big contribution. I think people seeing me uh, changed their approach to leadership, captaincy, coaching somewhat. I think that's definitely had an effect on other clubs is that I think a lot of them probably work off a, a Jay Holmes-esque approach to leadership and success now. Um, and I, I probably think my, my biggest contribution is that, you know, it doesn't matter how you start. You can, if you work hard, you can make it. Like you, you have to look. I was uh, coming out of university, this, this unfit, probably quite mentally unwell young man who worked his way over four years, five years, up the coaching chain to suddenly be one of the most well-known players or people for Quidditch, potentially, you know, in Europe, even to the world to some extent, and one of the most respected coaches in the game. And that wasn't through accident. That was through hard work, dedication, you know, trying my best and, if I can make it as, as quite an unremarkable athlete and, and what was quite a troubled young man, then there's there's everyone listening here can can certainly achieve far, far more than what I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hope people can, you know, see that and accept that. Yeah, for sure. Kind of being that, yes, example of what real determination can, uh, can achieve. Yeah. I think one thing that certainly I've noticed... And it's a very subtle thing is that I think you really helped change the vocabulary around Quidditch, um, especially in the UK. <laughs> so I, say, for example, before 2015, the person who stood behind the hoops and ran in, that was a troll. That's now a receiver. The person <laughs> who carries a ball, that's now a ball handler or your, your playmaker. Like yeah. all these little kind of sports terms cutting it the hoops that kind of idea and then even just within the community i think probably because of the salt mine you had a lot of time on that yeah. uh, show <laughs> i found myself saying the word trash a lot more often <laughs> and i i catch myself and go oh no i'm turning into jay this is awful but slowly but surely your vernacular has kind of crept into the community and a lot of people are using these terms whether yeah. consciously or not, um, I think that's a contribution that uh, should be commended. There, there was a point where, when like everyone in the UK was using the word cape to describe, oh yeah, that to, des- to describe a certain type of person, and I remember talking to you know a couple of my friends that we made it up with, but I think I brought it into the big time. I was like goodness me this is like we, we've literally changed how people are talking about quidditch we've we've changed the vocabulary to describe players and that was that felt insane when everyone i knew was saying cape as like a jokey insult or to describe a certain type of person that was god that might be my biggest contribution to uk quidditch sadly <laughs> which, what, what, a, what a sobering reality that is indeed uh, some of us are a very capey bunch so uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure many people have uh, appreciated uh, yeah. the linguistic addition you've added to the game <laughs> um, I feel like within you know, I guess your previous answer about 
Team UK stats and everything. And your um, your influence, you've kind of answered my last question. So we're going to jump into the mailbag. Lovely. Um, yeah, again, thank you to everyone who's stuck around. Um, <laughs> you're doing very well. If you list to five minutes of this, great. If you list to all of it, super, even better. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's great to get this stuff out. Yeah. So where should we start? Let's see. Uh, it's quite a fun one. Is the fake really that holy? <laughs> um, I think I think everyone needs to appreciate that the fake is holy and that the church of the fake is always looking for new members, uh, especially in my my absence. Um, people that don't appreciate what this is a reference to. So one of my most lethal weapons when playing is the, the fake shot or the fake pass. Um, and it's sort of how I made my money as a player. I've probably scored 90% of my goals and assists. And people will say it's, you know, that I shouldn't do it and that it's super easy to read, but it's worked for five years. It's still holy. Um, and I hope will continue to be holy as long as my career continues. Mm-hmm. I know for certain if, if James Fanning Gardens listens to this, he's, he's shaking his fist right now in uh, <laughs> disagreement. Um, let's see. So if it's not you, who, I guess, or what is the true villain of the UK community? Oh, that's a, ooh, it's a tough one. Um, sadly, I think it probably is me. Um, <laughs> probably complacency is probably the, the true villain of the community. Uh, people not doing their best to improve themselves, improve others around us and, and waiting for someone to give them something rather than going out and, and taking it is, is probably what I'd think is, is what's holding a lot of the community back. Mm-hmm. So if you could replay any game you played or coach, <laughs> which one would it be and what would you do differently? <laughs> I think there's a really obvious answer to this one. Um, it's funnily enough, Raptors versus Unicorns at EQC. Um, what would I do differently? Oh, I played quite well that game, uh, but there's a, a particular play. Uh, there's a loose ball. I kick the ball forward, recover it. I'm one-on-one -on -one with one of their players. Um, but instead of, instead of trucking straight over them um, or, or stepping them, I, I stall out the offense and try and pass it. Um, and the, the pass leads to a, a beat before. Uh, and I think, you know, if I'd have scored that one, we might have won. Um, if I could take current me and replace then me in the time machine, I've no doubt that we would win that game. Uh, but yeah, that is the game that I would I would play every single time until I could win it. Mm -hmm. So I guess this question um... Let's see. So you had the privilege of being around in the UK scene for a long time, almost since it, its inception. Yeah. Uh, so with your coaching hat on, who would you say is, I guess, the player who got away, kind of the player who could have been something great, who maybe didn't have didn't have that drive and ambition to make the top? Um, I think that's that's got a harsh question. Um, I won't pick anyone who I, I'm fully aware still plays to a serious level. Um, maybe maybe someone who's retired, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, so I've got I've got two. Uh, so there's a player called Amy Chan. Used to play for Durham. Uh, I remember watching her play. She was in the original X Fan. 
Um, I think she could have been quite good had she had she stuck with it, but she just chose not to. Uh, there was a player for Falmouth, Hannah Garland, very, very athletic, uh, smart, positive, but didn't commit to it. Uh, but the, the player that got away uh, is a player, she played for Liverpool, uh, called Anna Nicole Rowe. Um, and the reason that she got away is that she pursued a career as an Olympian uh, <laughs> and was probably the most successful athlete I've ever coached. Definitely the most coachable person I've ever coached and one of the most remarkable athletes um, I've ever had the chance to coach in all sports. Um, but she got away because she pursued, you know, dreams loftier than Team UK. But I think if she'd have played, she would have been absolutely phenomenal as a player. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one reason for not making it as a, a top Quidditch player is, yeah, pursuing uh, more established oh. sports, becoming an Olympian. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, I, uh, I'm sure that's a dream that many people uh, hold above becoming yeah. a top Quidditch player. Yeah, I can't hold it against her, you know. Mm. <laughs> okay, so we've got a couple more here. Um, what coaches do you look up to both in and outside of Quidditch? Who inspires you? Um, in Quidditch, uh, it sounds arrogant. Uh, very few. Um, I think especially in the UK, there's not particularly many good coaches. I looked up to Ash. I looked up to James, Lucy, Seb for the success that they had. Obviously, it's hard to deny what a good coach Louis is. Um, it pains me to say that because I know he'll be listening. Um, and, you know, you look at the, you pick any Team USA American coach and they're all pretty much the business. Uh, in my in my bookshelf is littered with coaching, you know, from, from more established sports. Uh, I'd, I'd love to be a Bill Belichick, Vince Lombardi, uh, but I know I'm far too emotional for that. Uh, there's, a, there's a basketball coach who coached Michael Jordan, the 95 Bulls, called Phil Jackson. Um, and his coaching style, his book, Eleven Rings, is functionally what I based my whole coaching style off. You know, personability, being with players, getting buy-in, all of that value. And, and that book really transformed the way that I approached team dynamics and what I thought made a good team. Uh, but another shout-out should go to, I, I picked up handball in my second year of university uh, and was much better. I could, I could throw the 15 metres. Uh, the captain I had for handball, Scott Wiley, uh, really showed me what a good captain was and sort of gave me the foundations of being a good leader. So you're not listening, but cheers for that. <laughs> yeah, it's good to get those, those shout outs there and um, hopefully some liter, literary literary recommendations yeah. for uh, people to add to their, their wish list. Yeah. And uh, a final question after what's been... A glorious two hours or so. Um, we, I think we've kind of discussed your low light within the sport and sort of many low and difficult points. But what has been the best moment that you've had within Quidditch? Oh, that's a that's a really tough one. Winning BQC twenty eighteen after what a hard time I'd had of it and. Having my parents there, my mum and my dad there to watch me win that uh, was incredibly special, despite it being not the most titillating game for my parents who didn't really understand why no one was playing. Um, that's up there. 
you know, European games gold in my first proper year of Team UK coaching was, was quite exciting uh, and very important. Um, but yeah, even little things like being voted in as Raptor captain, being trusted with that is 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 quite monumental. Um, but the the actual one of the, one of my favourite moments was when I was at a Merck tournament. Uh, no, I was in I was in Germany, and I was at a taster session helping one of my mates out, and I'd been playing, and uh, this guy came up to me and he was like, "You're you're pretty good." I wasn't, but it was very nice of him to say, and he was like, "Do you know what? I want to play like you." I want to be like you as a player. And he said that. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Cool. Cheers, man. Uh, and that was uh, that was Sammy Fakak. Wow. Who I think we'll all agree is, is one of the most phenomenal Quidditch players in Europe. Um, and he, he, if he ever got to as good as me, he he very quickly flew past it. Um, yeah, for sure. It wasn't, wasn't a high step for him to reach. But for him to say that to me, and then go on to achieve what he's achieved. Um, I think that's pretty special. Wow. Uh, I think that's a, well, I say it a lot, but that's a pretty good moment to, to finish on with this episode. Uh, Jay, I, I really can't thank you enough. It's been <laughs> phenomenal. Um, we've, uh, we've set the world to rights and we've gone through so much content, but I hope everyone who's listened to us this far and listen to all these ramblings of two reasonably old people in Quidditch <laughs> now. Um, yeah, I hope they enjoyed themselves. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, mate. It's it's nice to be able to talk so openly about my experiences in Quidditch, and I'll never turn down some shameless self promotion, Fraser. So this is <laughs> great for sure. Speaking of selfless promotion, do tell us how how do we find teammates? Oh, so you can look on Facebook for Teammates of Sports Podcast. You can look on Instagram at team.matesofficial. And on Twitter, with our tragic Twitter handle, it's like teammatesofish1 or something awful like that. Uh, but yeah, you can find it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. So give that a listen once you've listened to all the, the Total Quidditch episodes. Fantastic. Is there something for you to check out? Um, well... That's all we got for this episode. I feel like we really lifted the lid on many, many things to do with Jay that a lot of people didn't realise or think about. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been pretty special. Uh, so thank you again to everyone who's listened to us talking this past two and a bit hours. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to it. Um, I've certainly enjoyed uh, hosting it for you. Uh, if you want to stay up to date with future episodes of the Total Quidditch podcast, please give the Total Quidditch Facebook page a like. We'll be announcing upcoming guests on there and, of course, giving you a chance for you to send in your mailbag questions. So, until next time, keep yourself safe and live the game. Goodbye.